Welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. How dare Draco Malfoy tell Martin Brundle to go away? Lewis has stitched me right up here. He's supposed to be my mate. Midway through the flight, he suddenly decides that they want to put me in the overhead locker in the plane. Everybody in the Bears team found all these mouldy hairs in the bottom of their bag. Felt his hand on me. And I look back and he says, we're going to get this picture, champ. Oh my goodness. That has got to be the worst attempt of a drop goal in televised history. Hello, my name is Simon Lazeby and I'm a presenter on Sky Sports. You may have seen me present sports such as the F1, international rugby, England cricket and golf from around the world. However, I wanted to come and give you some information about the TWS Sports Podcast. The TWS Sports Podcast is the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic students who interview some of the biggest names in sport. Each week, they speak to a different sports person and delve deep into their lives, talking about the highs and the lows of their career and what makes them a top athlete in their sport. The TWS Sports Podcast were voted the best sports podcast in the world that promotes social equality. They picked up that honour at the 2021 Sports Podcast Awards. So if you're a sports fan and want to hear these great stories with questions from some amazing young people who promote autism, then the TWS Sports Podcast is the podcast for you. Techno Wood School is a school for autistic children and young adults. We have set this podcast up to provide our pupils with a fantastic opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sports men and women from a variety of different sports. Joining us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is Celtic and Manchester United legend. He won four Premier Leagues, two FA Cups, a European Trophy, a Scottish League trifle, uh, title, <laughs> and a Scottish Cup. Welcome to the podcast, Brian McClare. Thank you very much. Very kind of you to invite me. It's a pleasure having you. Firstly, I just wanted to say a massive thank you for travelling to our school today. It is an honour to meet you and me and have the opportunity to speak with you. Well, it's fair, Kenny. I was inspired by the invitation and inspired by your podcast, so I was quite happy to um, to come here today and, and meet you in person <laughs> rather than do it in a, remotely, you know. So, mm. No yes. Wi-Fi to get in the way. Because we all know what that's like. Well, yeah, there is. It can be here in one minute and down yeah, there the next. <laughs> sometimes my Wi-Fi is not it's reliable, you know. When, it's, when it works, it's very good. But the company tends to mess it up quite frequently, really, you know. So, yeah. yeah. So it's um, been a pleasure to be here so far. And thank you very much for the refreshments. <laughs> yes. Yeah. If you have any questions for us throughout the podcast about our experiences of sport, anything about autism, then please ask. We love to answer your questions too. Thanks very much. Um, we like to start our podcast with some random questions before like we that, start yeah. talking about your career. Like that a lot, yeah. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm absolutely ready for this. Okay. Yeah. Who is the most famous person in your phone book? The most famous person in my phone. That's pff, to be Alex Ferguson, I think, really, yeah. So, um, anyone else in there that's. No, I'll, I'll stick with Alex Ferguson. Okay. If you could trade lives of anyone for a day, who would it be and why? If I could trade lives of anyone for a day. Lives? Yeah, lives. For a day. <laughs> I think you would have to choose um, the lead singer or the 
guitarist in, in, a, in a group or, or music. Um, so recently I've seen James, so Tim Booth would be quite a nice one to swap roles with. I had a day lead singer of James. I saw Springsteen in Dublin, so I had Bruce Springsteen for a day would be particularly good, I think. Um, so anyone really like, like, like that. Um, going to see Pulp in a couple of weeks, so Jarvis Cocker would be another one as well that I would probably look at. So yep, choose one, I would say Tim Booth. Okay. He's got a sore throat at the moment, so I guess not. She's <laughs> <laughs> not doing anything in the last couple of days. But Tim Booth, James. I need singing with James. If you could have any superpower, what would it be and why? I'd like to be invisible. <laughs> Does that count? Yeah. Being fun. invisible. Yeah. Oh, that'd just be so much fun, wouldn't it? Yeah, you could see, you could imagine all the pranks you could pull if no one knows you actually, can actually see you as you. So you could, you're invisible, but they can hear you. Is that? Yeah. Is that the thing? So oh, that'd be wonderful. I'd, well, I'd, they I'd, you can make people think you're a ghost. Yeah, because <laughs> I've got a. I love taking the, I love getting a little rise out of my grandchildren who are well, five, nearly three and seven months. So the two <laughs> oldest ones that'd be great. That being in the room but they can't see you and they've no idea what's going plus on. Plus you could, plus particularly because yeah. it's starting to get a wee yeah. bit naughty now, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> plus if you're hungry, like, you don't want anyone to know it was you. You can always turn invisible and sneak something. Yeah, I have to create being invisible. Yeah. <laughs> like a cookie, yeah. and no one will know it was you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. We want to take you back to the beginning and talk about your childhood. What are your memories of growing up, and did you always want to be a footballer? It's strange in that my mother's passed me over a number of photographs recently, so I was only a baby, maybe one. And then the photographs, there's a ball. I don't know where the ball came from. Now, I'm not kicking the ball around, but there was a ball there. Um, when I went to primary school at around about four or five, we um, we all got taken from the to primary one into the school hall, and the school I was at had big windows at the side and big curtains, and the curtains got closed. And on stage was um, a projector. I'd never seen a projector on the screen before, so I knew what it was, but I didn't, didn't have any evidence of it. And uh, I shut the curtains, all the other kids come in, although the ones sitting behind you, because we were the little ones. So I was sitting closest to the stage, and they put on the highlights. Some guy came on and mentioned something about and they put on the highlights of the 1967 European Cup final into Milan versus Celtic. It was a game which Celtic eventually won 2 1. And I was totally hypnotised and fell in love with football. And I thought to myself, that's what I want to do then, as a five-year-old or something like that. Mm. And spent a lot of time after that. In modern sport now, there's people who have been to university and got degrees, and they talk about visualisation. But as far as I'm concerned, it's daydreaming. And I used to daydream. <laughs> I still daydream. Being invisible now. Uh, daydream of what, what I could, what I'd like to be able to do. So I refused when I was a bit older. When I was fourteen, thirteen, fourteen. My mother 
um, started working as a primary school teacher and she would drive to primary school, but she would drop off my uh, sisters and my brother, but I refused to get a lift because I wanted a longer time to daydream between the house and school. And I used to daydream, and I've got evidence of this about playing for Celtic and playing for Manchester United. Because on my technical drawing board, there's graffiti all over it. Now, it's Chelsea's on it, that's because my brother inherited it after me. But Manchester United's written in big red letters on this when I was 15 years of age. So, and the, the thing I tell to always talk about a lot of the times is uh, when I'm seeing any younger people is don't let anybody steal your dreams. Do you know who steals your dreams? No. Adults steal your dreams. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I asked my, my five-year-old granddaughter said to me recently, Grandpa, can I be an astronaut? I said, of course you can. But she might be an astronaut. If you keep telling them won't be an astronaut, stealing their dreams. Mm. Yeah, so many people, and it's happened to Adam, I don't know. Maybe he had dreams of doing something else. But nobody stole my dreams, so I've learned that lesson not to <laughs> not to steal anybody else's dreams. So that was that's yeah, that's in playing football all the time. Either just kicking a ball about outside. Different kinds of games of football, but it's always the same kind of practice. You playing games like Kirby and Barry trying to hit the bar and you'd be in the street playing and there's it's in the street, there's no you know, that 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 um, guard, that gate there's a goal and that gate there's a goal and that's actually four goals mm. so what you were actually doing and what you didn't realise is that you were switching the play and trying to find where the weakness was if they're all over that side to tie that side but we only because it was just a, that kind of game in the street and then my first experience of ever playing living aside football was primary school I was nine playing for the under 12s I uh, played left-back, uh, I had second-hand boots on, but nearly all the studs were worn away, moulded, soft, soft ground, hard ground, sorry, shoes, moulded, as you call them when I was younger, and they were called uh, George Best, style or something like that, and it hailstoned, we got beat five or six touched the ball every time the ball came to me I just hit the ball in the direction I was facing I never played in a and, and I think I nearly got hypothermia oh dear and, and I still don't know why I continued to daydream after that because it was a very miserable experience mm. I doubt the windows found, found it fun either <laughs> I mean there must have been one or two incidents of the window and a ball there's plenty of incidents of Plenty of that, yeah. <laughs> we weren't allowed to play with a big ball at primary school. We had to play with a tennis ball, which was another thing I think was an advantage to learning how to play football because all the practice at school, which would be an hour and a half every day because we used to have two breaks, one in the morning and one in the afternoon because in the old days we didn't finish school till four. Oh, you wow. Imagine that. Four o'clock. Wow. Start at nine, hour, 15 minutes, hour at lunch. 15 minutes and then finish at four. And uh, we played play we played football all the time. 
but it was a tennis ball, and I don't know who brought the tennis ball. Like nobody played tennis. Nobody <laughs> <laughs> had tennis rackets no. like that, so I don't know where that came from. You were born in Scotland, but started your career right here in the West Midlands with Aston Villa. Yeah. Firstly, how did you end up at Villa? What are your memories there, and why do you think it never worked out at Villa? Well, when you start playing and playing well for your local teams in Scotland, all the English teams had scouts, um, um, talent scouts in Scotland and Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland and Wales and all that kind of thing. So you, you would be they would go around watching games all the time. And if you if they thought you were a, a talent, a decent player, you would get invited down on the holidays or weekends maybe to go and have a trial with, with other kids at the time from all over the place. And I'd been to West Brom, which is even closer than Villa, isn't it? West Brom, Arsenal, um, and Villa. And I'd been invited to, to Bolton and Everton, I think. Uh, but the reason why I chose Villa, I decided to go to Villa rather than any other English clubs or indeed stay in Scotland, was that um, I was always encouraged to continue academic study. Right, so I've, because um, my parents would, were very encouraging in the sense that would tell me almost every week that you might break your leg. Yeah. Very encouraging, you know, that going out the door, you might be thinking they're going to come and get you from emergency, you know. <laughs> And I, I always think that's quite funny looking back on it, but all they were saying was that they were, without saying you're not going to be an astronaut, it's difficult to become a professional football player or whatever. Uh, but Villa, because when I'd finished my, my exams in Scotland, I wanted to continue to do something else because I knew that there'd be spare time involved. In, and uh, they said they would do that. From unfortunately for me, when uh, the the guy who who told me they was going to do this left the day after I arrived in Birmingham, and the new guy didn't really know anything about it, so couldn't quite arrange to do. I wanted to do further maths, yeah, but it uh, didn't really work out. Villa, uh, there was just too many play. Well, I'll tell you what this is. It's, it's like a simple lesson you learn about life and about football. You go, you go there as a 16-year-old boy and you put into a, a, an adult environment and you're treated like an adult almost immediately, which can be a bit frightening. Um, but the lesson really is that it's football in particular, my football and other sports I suppose, team sports, it's about opinion. Yeah. And the person whose opinion is the coach of that particular team. And he's the, he or she is the only person that you should be trying to please. And they have their own idea of who they think is a player and who their favourites might be. I wasn't a favourite and I didn't think I was very good to youth team coach. So I didn't really play very often. Um, so it kind of stalled in that kind of way. But I, at the end, I don't really know what happened because I went back for the second year. I signed for two years and as an apprentice then. And I went back for the second year. I don't really know what happened because I had applied for university and been accepted back home, but I wasn't really intending to go. It was just something I'd known that you had to do at that time just in case something happened, you know, at that particular moment. 
Uh, and then I got called into Ron Saunders, who was a manager's, uh, manager of Villa. So it was just me as a 7, 16, 17-year-old in the office with the manager. So imagine going into like Alex Ferguson or Arsene Wenger or Jurgen Klopp or Jose Mourinho and be told, look, just pack your bags and go without no real, no real, no debate about it, no conversation about it. I was on a train that afternoon back to Scotland and two weeks later I was at university and signed part-time for uh, a club not far from my uh, hometown called Morrow. So uh, the Villa thing was a great experience, full-time football, put on muscle, learned, I was there, they won the league that year. Uh, I like to take a lot of responsibility of that because I cleaned Dennis Mortimer's captain's boots and he had the shiniest boots in the old English First Division. Cleanest, shiniest white stripes used to paint him as well. And that, at that time, I learned that you should, whatever you're given, you should try and do the best possible job you can do. And that included mopping the floor or having to clean the toilets, which you don't need to do anymore in, in team sport. But you learned about discipline and, and doing the very best you could at anything you were, you were given. So I don't, I don't see it as a failure in the sense of it didn't, it didn't work out the way that I hoped it worked out, but I wouldn't say it was a, a failure. It was just part of the journey, you know. Mm-hmm. You signed for Motherwell and manager Jock Wallace. What are your memories of joining them and what is your standout memory with the club? Uh, Jock Wallace shouting at me. Um, he was a fierce man. He'd been... Uh, I think he'd been a, a PT trainer in the army, so they'd spent, they'd learned, I think they got the job, these people in the army at the time, or just before that, when you used to have to do national service in the UK, was that if you shout, if you had a great shouting voice, you got the job as, as shouting at people with, and getting turned up down hills and all that kind of thing. And that was my, my abiding memory of him and taking us to this sand dune in the east coast of Scotland. And I've never... I had such a hard session in all my life of running down and up and down and down and halfway up and back up again with this where I'm screaming at you. Oh, uh, and then uh, the, the only thing is at the end we got we got the chance to run all the way down the hill into the sea. So run into the sea and then he, he took us for lunch, which was quite pleasant. And then we got on the bus and on the way back he said, I'm gonna bring you here back here during the season to see how fit you are. I thought, oh, I can't come back here. <laughs> so physically but just the the, the the mental thing of mental challenge of getting doing that was I found that tough you know but it made you fit to get them out, yeah, so so shouting at me yeah but the thing is as well though when I you're 19 and you're 16 right? yeah. well when I was your age I knew everything so as far as I was saying Joe Wells knew nothing so you shout at me as much as you want, ah, and you ever, and I was taking on the whole world by that point, you know, because I do everything then I wanted. So advice wasn't something I was, I would open my lugs to, you know, my ears to. And it's only some time later that I realised they were actually trying to help me, you know, by giving me some advice. So, But that's another lesson to learn as you travel through, you know. Exactly. As a young player at the age of 18, what sort of person were you and how did you settle into a squad of players? 
I think that there's um, Alex Ferguson said some about me to about me to some some young people while while I was in the room, and he said that he said we didn't even he was talking to them, but I was there, and he said that see him all he wanted to be was part of a team, and I never thought about this before. So I thought that so when I went into anything, I always wanted to be part of the team. And I was quite happy to be involved, even even though I wasn't one for standing up and um, shouting and telling people what to do. The, the way that it is, the way it was, is, it was full of um, good-natured ribbon and banter, you know. So in there, when you're a younger one, you had to be... Um, you would be the butt of some kind of jokes or different things. There were no... no it's not bullying, it was just uh, humour and a way of, of enjoying it. And, and I found that I, I liked being in the dressing room, listening to something, sometimes being part of the part of the jokes, which was just the way, the way that it was. Um, you learned um, to be part of the, to that group in the dressing room. You had to stand up for yourself sometimes, so sometimes you might not accept the, the criticism or the, or the humour. Uh, and it, it certainly developed your personality with regards to believing in yourself. But then when they came into playing in the training thing, when you're in the training, I knew that I was, I, I could say that I was as good as, if not better than a, a lot of the older players who had been, some of them had played at Rangers and played for Scotland and played for Celtic and different things as part of their career. So I, I was quite comfortable in the, particularly there. Uh, I was quite comfortable with Villa as well and it's the, the, the peer group I was in and even playing against the first team sometimes in training. But certainly um, at Motherwell, I was I was quite confident in that. You know, like any young person, I think seven and again you'd get carried away with yourself. You did some pretty decent. So uh, part of the roles and responsibilities of the senior players is to make sure you don't get carried away. You know, because it uh, the next thing you can you do, the next thing you could do can be a, an embarrassing, very embarrassing error. You know, so yes, enjoy the good moments, but. Don't get too carried away about it. You then left Mavoir and joined Celtic. As someone from Scotland, was this a dream move for you or did you prefer Rangers? No, it was a dream move for me, yeah. I'd been, uh, I'd been a Celtic supporter and I would have gone to watch Celtic playing at home, but my mother wouldn't let me go on the train because she thought it was too dangerous with the, with the supporters. So the first time that I played in an old film game, which is Celtic versus Rangers or Rangers versus Celtic. So the very first game that I went to was at Celtic Park and I was sub. And I came on and I laid on the winning goal, but VAR would have chopped it off because I was offside. <laughs> I, know I, was offside. I knew I was offside as well, so how the linesman didn't quite see it. It was good for me because it was, as I say, I laid on a winning goal in that game. So yes, it was a, it was a dream. And when I went there, the players that I'd admired and played against uh, for the two seasons before welcomed me um, so well. You know, that made me feel great. They had a very, very first moment I walked through. In fact, one of the Lisbon Lions, had, had the team that beat until 1967, um, and scored in that game, 
Stevie Chalmers was working in, with Celtic at that time and he came across out from the little office to welcome me to Celtic Park, which I thought was pretty classy, you know, he didn't have to didn't have to do that bit to welcome me and I was wow, this is he's a proper legend. So from the moment I walked in there I was felt part of it, yeah. Is it true you got the nickname Chucky from Tommy Burns when in Switzerland with Celtic? Yeah, it was well he didn't he made it stick. Yeah. He didn't actually come up with the nickname because it was it was a roasting hot day in Switzerland. I mean, it was like 90 degrees in the shade and we were playing, I remember, Saturday afternoon. Uh, and the, the, the team we were playing used to be called Baal, we're now called Basel, even though it's spelled exactly the same way. But that's, <laughs> that's what they're called now. <laughs> yeah. And there was a, same like all old stadiums, big old stadiums, a terrace in there, a big massive uh, big terrace in behind. There was nobody really at the game. But you could hear these two voices, almost like talking about being invisible, singing Celtic songs before they appeared and then they appeared right over the top right at the top of this massive terrace and, and they've all they've got they're dressed for winter they've got hats on scarves Celtic hats Celtic scarves on big coat 90 degrees come over the hill and because it was quite quiet one of them shouts on you go the chocolate McLear <laughs> and Tommy Burns being one of the wittier ones what, what's that right you're having that because sometimes they thought if it would annoy you, they'd keep doing it, just, it's just part of the humour. You know, if someone's annoy you, you were going to keep getting it. So he kept, he, so every minute, every single time I was around, we'd be touching the ball and having a meal or whatever, it was chocolate, 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 chocolate. So yeah, he made it stick. So that, And I wasn't that bored, but it didn't annoy me because I hadn't ever had a nickname. I think I'd wanted to have a nickname when I was at school because everybody else had a nickname, but... Mainly the nickname, certainly when I was at school, where you just added uh, an Y to part of the name, you know, or an IE or something like that, you know, but because Bryony doesn't work, McClary doesn't work, works in a wee bit with children's books and different things, but it doesn't, didn't work then, so I didn't, never had a nickname, you know, so, um, although you can shorten it, so I've had BB recently and that kind of thing, you know, but. Uh, I never had a nickname until I was 19, so I like I quite liked it because it was just totally different from everyone else. And then uh, later on, it allowed me to tell the story about and people get puzzled, you know, because you need to say, well, it's rhyming slang for, I'm surprised you've not got any eclairs. <laughs> <laughs> basically, at the end of the day, day, that nickname was an excuse to poke fun at you for your last name. Uh, yeah, well, well, yeah, because it rhymed with clear, aye. Mm -hmm. aye. Rude. <laughs> well, yeah, you can yeah. say that, but it, but that that's just mm -hmm. the way that was. And I should know. know. So. My last name's Don. <laughs> so I should know. Donny. <laughs> at least my at least my first name doesn't sound like some sort of particle, Mr. Adam. <laughs> um, you scored some great goals for Celtic, such as the one against Sporting Lisbon, Rangers and Dundee United. What is your favourite goal from your time with Celtic? The, see, I would say that every goal was a great goal. Yeah. You know, and you, you, you can't score a bad goal. I mean, there are some things that look like a real fluky thing in an embarrassing kind of situation, particularly for the opposition. Um, I don't have a favourite, I don't have a favourite goal, I don't have a favourite game because I look at them when you have 
children you don't, you, you try not to favour one over the other, you know, and try and treat them all the same. So I look at the games and, and the goals as, you know, they're like my children, you know, like there's, I don't know, there's a few hundred of them. So I think it'd be unfair. And that one there was, might have been important in the sense of it might have been a winning goal, but that goal from there might have been for, because it was hit from outside of the box and it went into the top corner. Uh, so I don't have any favourites. And they end up, when you're looking back, you, start, you quite appreciate games where you were rotten in, you know, as well, because there's a little part of, sometimes you, you don't play very well, sometimes you have bad days, anything, you know. I remember playing in a game at Goodison Park, home of Everton, and I did not, and you could try this uh, deliberately, I didn't do one thing right. Not one, I didn't control the ball properly once. I didn't pass it to a red shirt once. Which is quite, a, a, you know, if I'd been doing it deliberately, it would have been an incredible performance. But I wasn't, I just did what, a game like that. And I didn't, I thought, I'm, I'm going to get taken off here, I'm that bad. He's got to, he's just going to take me off, you know. And I got uh, the famous hairdryer at half time, and at the end of it, he said, is there any chance you can expletive pass to someone with a red shirt on? And from that game forward for the next three years, I think the physio would say, just as before, we're going out onto the pitch, home and away go, Jockey or Brian. Remember, we're in red or we're in green and yellow or we're in blue or we're in black today, you know? Yeah, so that was, a, that was his real joke for the very little. Little game, you know. So, so as I say, bad games sometimes stick in your memory more than good games for various different reasons. Can we play in a, another quickfire game with you, please? Don't we will this, give you. If this is about me, I'll get nothing right about this. <laughs> <laughs> Did I miss a question? More like a whole sheet. Right. <laughs> it's because I've been mixed round, that's why. <laughs> I was wondering why it said another on it. There you go. Sorry. Right. At the end of the 1985-86 season was one of the closest league titles ever as it went down to the final game of the season. Can you tell us about that, please, and what are your memories of it? 85-86. 85, 86. It was the 1985, 86. Was that what you and Dundee or got the year wrong? 85, 86 was 86, yeah. The, what had happened was the Hearts were by far the better team that year. I don't think they'd hardly lost the game. Uh, we had been a bit patchy. We had to, we got to a situation where we had to win every single game for something like 9, 10, 11 games. And all we could do was just win a game at a time. And I think the game, the game for me that, that made a difference in the sense of we've got a chance. We still the heart still had to falter. You know they were they were in the favourite position. Um, and we went to Petardry to play Aberdeen, and we'd never beat Aberdeen up there. They always gave us a trouncing or a beat us comfortably, and we beat them one 0 And I thought, yeah, we've got we've got a real good chance here, but. Coming down to the last day of the season, 
they had a better goal difference, or goal half as well, I think it was goal difference, and they all they had to do was draw away at Dundee at Dens Park. We had to turn around a two, three goal difference, three goals I think it was. We were we went to place at Milne at Lord Street in Paisley and we were four nil up at half time. So we were comfortable we'd done our bit and I scored a fifth goal. So we we we'd done enough to do that. It was still nil nil at um at Dens Park. And then there was a big cheer in the crowd. We were all then before the internet. Do you know how you found out anything? Before the internet? Well, the main the main two factors which, you know, makes me explain and like learn about like the past is like literally just talk to like boys people or literally just like <laughs> read read from a book. Yeah. So but to the hear to know about everything that was happening at the particular time. People had little radios. Yeah. Transistor radios, right? Where you could listen to broadcasts of the football. Yeah. Put your batteries in it. There was a little radio portable, and there loads of people would take them to football with them. Yeah. So somebody had some few people must have transistor radio. It came across that Dundee had scored. Kit had scored. Well, no, sorry. He said that Kit had scored. So there was a wow. Hold on a minute. There's a kid that plays for Hearts as well. And a kid that plays for Dundee. What, what, what is it? And then the whole crowd erupts. When the goal, when their goalkeeper is holding the ball in his hands, he's looking around, going, "What's going on here?" You know. So a, a lad called Albert Kidd had scored. So thinking, right, it's getting close. And then he scored again. Our game finished before their game, which would never happen now. And we had to wait about seven or eight minutes before the game finished, and then we went back out onto the pitch. So yeah, it was a quite an incredible, incredible day winning the league in the last day like that goals and points uh, but also the, the fact that we'd, we'd put, we were on a run of a number of games that were, we were unbeaten How would you say your relationship was with the Celtic fans? Um, I would say it was, it was good but I don't I mean I think that anything you've got players that that are you might I think you get that Maybe be more popular. So we had another player there. Another player there. Uh, it was a striker called Morris Johnson, who uh, created a, quite a bit of controversy not long after that. But Mo had blonde highlights, and he was probably a bit more exuberant than I was. And I think maybe that Celtic was maybe a bit more fonder than him. But however, then the number of people I meet now, I go to watch Celtic play. The number of people I meet now, going to games or after games or. They should say, "Oh, I thought you were a good player." It's quite, quite impressive. But go back to, I'd realised uh, from that moment that I'd been at Aston Villa that you'd need to please the manager or the coach because he's going to make a difference. He or she's going to make a difference to your life, not just your football life. So, supporters, yeah, but. Um, I didn't need adulation, and I didn't. That wasn't that wasn't part of what I wanted. Is I wanted to play professional football, and I wanted to play for fans. I wanted to win things, but I didn't want to have. That. I mean, my ideal thing would have been getting the bus to football, going in, playing the game, getting all that bit in the game, finishing and getting the bus home, and nobody knew I was. You know, like that, going back to that invisible person. 
but you can't have that. And it's still never gone away. Don't know mm-hmm. what this, you know, particularly with social media now, you know. Sure. I'm a bit of a star on that, even though I haven't done anything. You left Celtic in 1981 to join Man- Manchester United. Did it disappoint a few people the way you left Celtic? Yeah, well, I yeah, they still tell me about it now, you know, how I devastated them, yeah. The yeah. people I meet now say, so you brought, I broke their heart, you know, these are grown men now, you know. And it's, it still resonates for me as well. It was a very difficult decision. Um, at the end, I did what I thought was, was the right thing. I'm still not convinced that it was the right thing, even though I had great success at Manchester United. Uh, but I'd made the decision, and when you made the decision, you have to you have to stick with it and, and see it through. Yeah. I mean, um, there may have been occasions that, that I may have thought that there would have been a return, you know, but uh, 11 years at Manchester United was, was not too well as a player. It was excellent. Even though I got shouted at a lot there as well. <laughs> Don't the, you well, pretty much footballers get shouted at everywhere. And that wasn't just for playing football. Uh, sort of stuff. <laughs> well, everyone gets shouted at. Everyone. And the only reason you wouldn't get shouted at, out, shouted at, is if you're deaf and you can't get shouted at because you, you wouldn't be able to hear them anyways. Well, surely you can pick up the vibrations of somebody being angry if you're deaf, you know. All you can land on the street to affect the floor. Yeah, well, there's, there was plenty of that when I was getting shouted at. The whole building was vibrating. Oh, dear. What did you do? Just sometimes it was humour and sometimes it was bad football. <laughs> OK. You play with some great players. Wait, have we mentioned any of the great players? Any of these players? What in the world? Is this another typo mistake? You don't mention any players. Mm. Yeah. But I'll just clarify something there. They, they played with me. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> you must have had some fun, funny times at Celtic and Manchester United. Who were the jokers in the dressing room and can you remember any funny pranks? Well, I mean, the... Uh, well, I was one of the jokers for a start. Okay, uh, so you were one of the jokers. Consistently, you know. Um, and Tommy Burns at Celtic um, was very funny. I mean, um, he would... Uh, I made an error. Another thing, I made an error of going to the hairdressers, not the barbers, the hairdressers, and ended up... Uh, at the time, you had this hairstyle called a, a demi-wave, which is like half a perm. I think the hairdresser was a Rangers supporter and he permed my hair. Right, so I ended up getting a lot of stick for, you know, having straight, straight hair to this pair. And I let it grow out. And when it grew out, it changed colour. And then that game, if you look at that, the highlights of that 85, 86 game at Paisley, it's kind of, it's kind of blondy orangey colour. Right? Oh dear. It's really quite long. So which was your natural hair colour? Uh, brown. Brown, like. Yeah, just brown like that, yeah, brown, so very brilliant yours. So uh, he would come in, it looked like, so I got really long and it looked this orangey kind of colour. And, and he, would come in, like he would come in every day and I used to sit in a little corner here and there was a petition here and the door to the restaurant the other side when we were training and he would come in every day and he'd poke his head round and he'd go like that. Because <laughs> he thought I was like a lion's mane I had, you know, so... So, uh, so I got that every day from that, from that mm-hmm. until I got it. Well, until I got it cut, you know, and, and I just let it grow until until pre-season. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Tommy Bones was hilarious. 
when I went to Manchester United, and another, there maybe something to do with the colour of their hair, was Gordon Strachan, there was another, Ginger, he was hilarious, you know. But I used, one of the things I used to quite like to do is that the, um, in the training ground at Manchester United, we originally had showers where you just be pressed a button and it, it, it came on and you, you couldn't change the temperature, it was just whatever, whatever it was. Say that central point, it was whatever cold or you couldn't change the D's, pushed it on, and it you had to hold it in and all that because it only stayed on for brief moments. If you try to wash your hair, or you'd be like keep pressing it in, you know. And then they, this is this just shows you that times have changed, right? <laughs> they did up the dress rooms at, uh, at the stadium at Old Trafford, so and they took out the showers and put in new showers. And they took the showers from Old Trafford and put them in the training ground. So they're not wasting these showers. They took them and put them in the training ground. So, but now all of a sudden, we've got a thermostat on them. And you can change the temperature. So every day I would change the temperature. And it used to take a little while. It take a little, a little pause on it, you know. So you could get from the, the uh, shower room round to and get, start getting dried before it turned cold. And I'd every day, whoever was standing there. I don't, I, I, I don't know why everybody stood next to me, because I did it every day. They stood next to me, and what you'd do is they'd start washing their hair, right, and get, you can't see, right, because all like that. So and I'd flick it, I'd flick it, it to up. cold. So I'd flick <laughs> it to cold. So it'd be like that, and then go, ah! <laughs> so you Every day I was laughing, it's a different person. Except one day I decided I'd do it the other way around, and it got really, really hot. Yeah, proper scalding hot, you know, but oh dear. But it was Peter Smeichel, so he deserved it. So, so <laughs> did everyone know it was you? Well, because I was standing next to him, wasn't I? Not there. It was one minute I'm there, not. So I, I flicked it to hot, and I thought he's he's great for a minute. And now oh, I really let out an almighty scream, didn't he? And he comes running round. He says, "I'm going to kill you." I'm going to kill you. Goes, well, he can't because he'll get arrested. Yeah, he's got to be leather and going to batter me. I said, well, you probably pay to do that, yeah, but it's worth it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you decide to join Manchester United? Did you have interest from, from other clubs? Aye, yeah, Chelsea, Tottenham, Cologne in Germany, um, Mechelen in Belgium, some French teams, I think. Uh, Alex Ferguson asked me if I was interested in helping him rebuild the football club. And I say, when, when you were in Scotland, you were allowed to have an English team as well as a Scottish team. So it was for me, it was Celtic and Manchester United. So um, the only place I was going to go was Manchester United. And I went to Manchester United for less... Uh, financial um, opportunities than anywhere else, you know. Even Celtic had offered me more money than, than I went to United for. So I was comfortable that I was I was choosing a football reason for, for, for wherever I was going to go. Um, although I've, I've still got the bit of paper that the manager of Chelsea wrote the figures down about what they were going to give me, which was really at the time just astonishing, really, you know. But... Uh, I'm quite happy with it. Um, with what happened, you know. So for me, it was yeah, it's great getting paid for something you love. But I wanted to be successful, and I wanted to play for for those clubs, even badly. Which yeah. I did lots of times. <laughs> Can 
Can you recall the first time you met Sir Alex Ferguson and how did he persuade you to join Man United? He romanced me. He told me I was great and everything about me and he did all he, that's the one thing about him. He'd always done his research from what he could find out um, about you from other sources. Uh, he would have a, nowadays he would have a wonderful time on the the World Wide Web, finding out things about you, you know. I might even make decisions on players mm-hmm. with uh, some little detail that was in there that he didn't like, you know. Um, so he kind of romanced me, yeah, until I signed, and then he was ghastly to me after that. Okay, good to know. <laughs> you missed out on the 1990 World Cup in Italy, in Italy after playing every game in the qualifiers how did you feel about that t- that at the time? And do you feel you should have gone to the World Cup? Well, how would you feel? To be honest, I admire the person who 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 who, who was slept instead of me. <laughs> That's a good answer, that. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How would you have felt? Pretty much the same. I'd be jealous. I think the uh, when when you're not expecting it, you know, because you're involved in every game. And you want to play in a World Cup. That's another thing. You want to be Celtic, Manchester United, but you want to play in World Cups. You didn't pick for your country. You want to play in World Cup. Uh, yeah, it was it was difficult. But then when you the same kind of thing, it was difficult for the coach and uh, Andy Roxburgh to. He's got to pick his group of players, and he decided for whatever reason. Now for mine, I, th- I always look at you know whatever happens is you, you're culpable yourself. So I think it was my own. Um, Shortcomings, whatever they were, I mean, may well have been, or um, as a member of the squad rather than my football. Uh, but he, he made the decision. He, he told me, um, could it? It'd always been nicer to be told something face to face, but he called me, and that, and that was the decision that was made. So uh, I just, I just, I watched the World Cup. I mean, Scotland didn't do that well, so. Um, bit disappointing really all round I never played in the World Cup but I did get back involved in international and I played in the Euros uh, not long two years later uh, but you know when you look back you say well it was just all part of the thing you can't you can't I'd like to have everything but you can't you couldn't have everything so it's just it was just one of those things I don't uh, I don't have any issues with the people who made the decisions um, they made the decisions they thought it was the right thing but they, you, you recognise that when you become involved in coaching and, and managing in the academy managing, managing people like I did when I stopped playing and you can use those experiences I think I've always been quite positive about negative things mm-hmm. you know, I nearly got there mm-hmm. Funny you mentioned that two years the, Euro, the, the Euros two years later after that Funny you mentioned it Yeah Two years later, you played in the European Championships in Sweden. What are your memories of that tournament? Well, I'd never. I just like, I couldn't. I couldn't score a goal for Scotland. I just couldn't just get a goal. Just couldn't. The international career wasn't. I mean, I was in. I've got thirty caps. But really, I was in about sixty squads because if I, you know, I could have got on. I played maybe more, but I just couldn't get a goal. You know, and I got a goal in the. Um, which could be, you could put it down to a dubious dull goals panel. It might have been an own goal, you know, but if you check the record books, it says my name. So we played really well. 
and we played against some. We played against great teams. We played against the Netherlands, Holland. We played against the Germans, and we played against the CIS, which was old Russia. Andrew Kinchelskis, who was my roommate at United, he was playing for for the Russians, and I was playing against Rud Hulett, one of the best players of the world at the time. Well, I say I was playing against him. I didn't see him for the first couple of minutes because he was he was like invisible. He was in front of me, and then. Poof, like mm. flu powder out of Harry Potter oh. just disappeared and I was like he was, he was over there CIS that sounds like some sort of shady organisation oh yeah isn't yeah. it well it was there it still is <laughs> <laughs> well Russia is pretty shady right now isn't it if you haven't already then be sure to download our new app Gold the home of challenges post and take on challenges call out your friends and top leaderboards Challenges can be about absolutely anything, so be as creative as you like. Be sure to follow our social media too for awesome giveaways. That's gold. You moved to Manchester where music on the in the city was massive. What does music mean to you? And did you and your Manchester United teammates ever go and listen to the, to live music? Well, yeah, when you could do, uh, you were. You were supposed to stay in um, for eight hours before every game. So when we started getting a bit more successful, the, the opportunities to go out sort of narrowed down. And I'd eventually, during that period, ended up with three young kids, so you had to spend time with them. But yeah, there was a few few concerts to go. Never uh, never made it to the Hacienda. I don't think it would have been a place that if Alex Ferguson found out that you were at, would he been too pleased about, you know, so... Um, but with those football and then music for me was two wonderful things and they went together you know I, a lot of the uh, musicians that I've met wanted to be football players and a lot of the football players the enlightened football players want to be um, wanted to be in bands so it was a great it was a great time but I was I didn't live in Manchester I was in the leafy suburbs of Cheshire so I didn't venture into town that much. Couldn't really. And even then, I mean, you've got social media now. The people are reported where you can be in uh, seconds, no, no matter where you are. I, mean, I was I was, I was, a guy sent me, um, I don't know how I found out the address, sent me some strips and asked me if I'd sign them. And, I, and he sent me a, a package with stamps on it. And I couldn't, I just couldn't be bothered to go to the post office, right? But then I thought, I need, I really need to do something about this. It's been there for about a year, right? Lying on the floor. And I took it to the post office. And whatever happened to the stamps or whatever, they said they won't accept this parcel because the stamps have been used before. And I thought, surely somebody's not stuck on used. They wouldn't accept it, right? So I knew that I was going to be down in Manchester, and it was North Manchester, this, this um, parcel. So a couple of weeks ago, I thought, all right, I'll go. I was going to go and see somebody else in North Manchester who had something for me. And I said, all right, I'll go. And I ended up having to walk about two miles to this guy's house. And I was, couldn't, I was in a cul-de-sac and I couldn't quite find the number. His numbers are all odd. It's odd. Yeah, odd and even sometimes don't match in places, mm. you know. It's like, I can't find this house. Next minute, the guy shouts, Chalky. And turned around and I went... I looked to the partner and you he went and I gave him the strips and he went oh what are you doing in my street yeah brilliant oh, and can I get a selfie and then uh, I gave him his, and he was 
delighted to get it back. I thought he lost them three kits. And then it wasn't just signed by me, it was signed by loads of ex-players, you know. So he was really quite happy about that and he posted something on the internet. And then I walked from there to another, it was a beautiful day, I walked from there to another park. Uh, it's strange this, people don't realise that people can walk, right? So I walked to another part of the town to meet this guy who had something for me, right? And then when I'm going home, I get a message from a lad that I've known for a long time. Somebody's messaged him to say, did I live in North Manchester? Because they thought they'd seen me wandering around. And the guy wrote, no, he doesn't live there. And I just sent him back a laughing face. They went, what was it you, you know? Because he likes to, this lad likes to know everything about everything, you know? Yeah. And I like it's funny because I don't tell him, so it's annoying for him, you know. So, you know, within, so he knows within brief minutes that somebody had seen me walking. Just, people don't walk. Certainly people who didn't play, play, play football don't walk. They don't we walk around legs. anymore. You know? well, well, what do people think they're for? Well, that's how I look at it, you know. I'm quite happy to go, I'm quite happy to walk or get the bus or get the train, you know. So it's not a... But other people find it difficult to understand, you know, where's your car? What, 10 miles away. But why would you use a car when what, where you want to go is like two blocks away? Literally. Well, that's just the sort of thing that annoys me all the time when I see people driving to the supermarket across the road. That's stupid. Well, I mean, unless you get in a big shop because you don't know you're carrying it all home. Drag your drag whoever in the house with you along and make them help you carry it well, and that's a problem solved. That's always a good show, yeah, but... Or kidnap the shopping cart. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Robson was captain of Man United when you joined the club. Can you tell us a little bit about him as a person and a captain? Um, he was he was a good captain, and because he, he he told you when you were doing good good things, and he praised you, but he was also good at criticism, uh, and then. What he said, he very difficult to argue with because he really was quite good at getting right to the point of why he hadn't played particularly well or, or what he did there. What I like, what the only thing, I was with him the other night, actually, we did a, a question and answer thing in um, Lancaster. Uh, and he's, he's always been great for me, you know, he's always been very supportive. Well, one of the things I always remember about Brian was that we'd, sometimes we were doing question and answer. People would say you were very. For- I was very fortunate that I never got never many injuries, and Brian would say that's because he never tackled anybody. So, <laughs> yeah, for him it was a proper contact sport. Uh, he was very brave, and he, and he led. He led with the example, particularly on the pitch, you know, and in training as well. You know, he was he was very. Uh, he trained how he played. I didn't do that. I found another way. It didn't involve training. Oh, I was right. there, but I was I wasn't doing the best that I could have done. As uh, far as I was concerned, the games were supposed to be important. Yeah. We have a number of photos from your career. If we show you a photo, can you explain where the photo is from and what memory it brings to you, please? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is some French dude. <laughs> uh, that would have been uh, Sunderland 5-0, I think. And uh, 
part of my um, well, a big part of my career and what people remember about me is that I became a master of a, uh, a 13-inch pass. So I passed it to him and he chipped it into top corner, or chipped it over the goalkeeper. Eric Cantona. Eric was a cracking guard. Yeah, brilliant. And then you get assistant Beckham as well? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that was another. that Two was... the greatest assistants in the United States. Yeah, but yeah. the one for Beckham, though, was that we were winning the game against Wimbledon and I was sub and the manager told me, you calm the game down, you go on and calm the game down and just kill the game, you know, just keep it quiet. And uh, so I went on and the f- almost the first thing I do, I get the ball and I pass it to David and then I move, expect him to pass the ball back to me and then I'll pass it and we'll keep the ball. And he's just inside the, the centre circle and I know that what he's doing because I could see him shaping up behind him and thinking, he's going to kill me if you're shooting from there because he's told me to thing with the game and I've given you the ball. I'm the one that's going to get the hairdryer for it. I have that. What you... Oh, that looks good. <laughs> and then we used to have a lot of supporters at Sellers Park and they all cheered and they thought, you scored because it was that far away, you know, you're not quite sure if it's gone over at the top of the net or but anyway, you think that's gone in. And then all I could think about was, oh no, it's a Scottish goalkeeper who's playing for Wimbledon. And I thought he's the one he's going to get. Because there's always this humour about Scottish goalkeepers. I think going back to there was an international in 1963 where England beat Scotland 9-3, and the, the, the joke all the time after that was, even in Scotland, would be, uh, what's the time? And it'd be nine past halfy. That was a guy's name, yeah. you know. So, Scottish goalkeepers always got a bad press, particularly in England. So, that's what I didn't really. I jumped on his back, and that's why you see and you see that in the videos. And I gave him a wee cuddle, and that's what you see in the videos. It got me out of it now. I don't think you see me in it now. <laughs> that was a 20 man brawl, and only found out recently. I thought it was a 21 man brawl. I knew that their goalkeeper. David Seaman hadn't participated because it was too far away from him to wander down and he thought, well, by the time I get there, it'll be finished. And the other one who just decided to outed himself the other day was Clayton Blackmore, who said he wasn't involved either. I can't even remember him playing in the game. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there was a... I uh, accidentally kicked somebody twice on the back. It was an Ouch! Accident. Accidentally. Like, accidentally twice, not just once, twice. <laughs> And then everybody... Was it the same person? Oh, the same guy, yeah. Are you sure that the first one was an accident and the second Both one Both of them were accidents. Are you sure? Oh, yeah. See, it was the same person, Actually, same I, I think if you look closely, he actually threw himself into my foot. Not <laughs> twice. Yeah, I was, I was about to say, did that player probably have a good review before the kicks anyway? He was lying on the ground. He didn't do it. Anyway, Alex Ferguson used to have a great thing saying you should be glad he's playing, glad he's playing, glad he's playing today because if there's anything, anything you needed, he would be a shoulder, he'll be a shoulder, he'll be a shoulder. Meaning that you were a, a good team and a good unit, you don't have to like each other. And that was the case for both teams. They all joined in and in, in, in with their player, and they all joined in on behalf of me. But one of their players, a sneaky little lad called Anders Limpar, Swedish kid who'd scored the goal when it was all pushing and shoving and people grabbing you by the throat. He came round behind and he punched me in the side of the head. 
Ow. And uh, but then one of my colleagues chased him around it like it was in the playground. It was that's what it was like, and it was like chasing kids in the playground. And, and, you're like, and everyone's go. like, "Well, that's normal." Well, you don't you don't know you, you forget there's forty four thousand people there, and it's live on telly. So you forget you, you forget all those things, and then so I ended up with two stitches in me as well. So the melee finished. I'd never been sent off. Ever like not since that nine year old boy all the way through to twenty nine or whatever it was there never ever been been booked but never been sent off. I thought ah, you can't, I'm not getting away with this. This is straight red card. And the referee was a very experienced referee called Keith Ackett who'd always been told, "Don't go in when it's doing like that. Just step back because it'll calm down." And it did. It calmed down after a few seconds, really. And um, I thought, "Oh, here we go." And he booked a lad that I kicked. <laughs> why did you do that? Because a, it was a bad tackle before. That's why I lost my... Went into the red zone. Right? People talk about different zones. You're in. I was I proper mm. angry. Right? I just lost it because he could have hurt my teammate and I wasn't having that. But there was a wee things that had gone on before as well. There'd been some history between the two of us anyway. But uh, I, and I, I, that was it. I had to go on. Well, I got fined. I volunteered to get fined because you had to see, had to be seen to be doing something, you know. Uh, so I got fined two weeks' wages, which is a, wasn't um, the best, you know. But um, this one. Yeah, I noticed. Close the go. What? That's a lot. All I see is pixels. Pixels, <laughs> right? What is quite what I like about that one is this yes lad here. What's he doing? He's the captain, right? It's yeah. called Danny McGrain. And clearly he thinks I'm going to score because he's not ready for anything, is he? He's not doing anything. He's, he's like, yeah. well, I'm not running in. If he misses, if the goalie saves it, I'm not running in. <laughs> that's what he's saying. <laughs> Basically, that is, oh, yeah, that's hilarious in that picture. But it was an uh, old film game, Celtic Rangers. And uh, a lad ran out of the Rangers end. Uh, managed to get past the, the police and the stewards and ran straight towards me and I, I thought well, what, what do you do you know do you, do you wait till he gets close and punch him or well, I don't know really you just kind of punch well if he's going to punch you you know try <laughs> rugby tackle you can't just let him. anyway he just ran I don't know what he was doing but he ran ran towards me and then decided to fear away and ran kind of just wait I don't know what he was doing but he got he got caught then so the, I wasn't involved in any um, assault <laughs> Either way. <laughs> okay. I scored uh, two penalties in that game against an English goalkeeper. Oh dear. Um, there was a big drinking culture in football in the 90s. How did Sir Alex Ferguson deal with this and did he change parts of this culture? Well, I think this, this, there is a certain amount of a myth about that. Now, I think there was... There's probably more um, drinking than there is now in professional sport. But, again, you professional... So if you said, like, if you said Brian Robson was involved in the, the part of the drinking culture, he would not, not have a drink two days before the game. So Thursday, Friday, nothing. Saturday, you'd have a couple of drinks after the game. But usually you're too tired to be able to drink for too long, right? And then we started being successful. So it was a game midweek, so you weren't out Monday or Tuesday, Wednesday, play, maybe have a beer after the game. 
So really, Sunday was the only time you could probably have a drink. So once a week was, you know, they would maybe have a blowout. Now occasionally that that blowout would start at lunchtime, and go on for twelve hours. Now so that but once a week. But with regards to that, you know, the people talk about other people involved and they say, oh, that was because of the drinking thing. It wasn't because of the drinking thing. It was because when you look at you when you look at anything. In regards to team sport, it's the, the manager, the coach is interested in players that are available, you know, fit and available to pull a jersey on. Right? If you're injured, you're of no use to them whatsoever. They're of no interest in you. And if you've got a, a, a record that suggests that you can't, your body was going to let you down over a period of time. So he changed, well, he, he looked at all of those things and decided players that he felt were injured far too often had to go. Other people would say it was to do with it's not, it's to do with the fact that they weren't available and they bought other players. And, and if you look at the players he brought in, a number of them ended up playing for eight, nine, ten, eleven, and in Dennis Irvin's case, twelve years of fifty, sixty games a season. Now that's what you need to have to, at that time, to be consistent and to get consistent form. And when you win and you want to, and you 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 want to win again, and that's that's what he had. So, yeah, there was there was more. There was more than that. I don't know. I'm not involved in professional football. There is more. There was a little bit more drinking than there was then. Wait, back up. So you're telling us that people potentially go into games drunk? No, no. No, it might have looked like that. You saw? Well, yeah, because they wouldn't go out. You wouldn't go out. You couldn't go. And that's what the point I was going to say to you that, that this is pre internet and pre mobile phones with cameras and recording devices. Alex Ferguson knew everything that was going on because people would tell him. So if you went somewhere, like that story I was telling about me wondering about North Manchester, somebody would tell, phone them, phone up and say, I saw. And I saw sometimes that it wasn't correct, but a lot of the time it was correct, you know. So he knew. So when he was pulling you out of the office to ask you if you'd been out, he knew the answer. He knew that if you were lying, you know, so like, no, you're lying. Don't lie to me. Make it worse. Right? He knew. So he, he, he knew that if you, if you transgressed and you were doing something that potentially was wrong, you would get punished for it. And that punishment, whether you weren't playing or it would be a financial punishment uh, and um, it, those financial punishments unlike the ones today were, were hard for people you know um, did you find did you find did some addicts manage very differently so imagine uh, managing Cantona yeah, managing yeah. Gary Neville yeah, exactly. how did he manage that he, he managed the way that he felt that they would respond he was, he was trying to find a way of inspiring you, I suppose, or I don't, I don't want to be saying it was a fear, a, reg, a regime of fear, but respect probably more. And the, he and the, he knew the players that he could give a hairdryer to that would would uh, they would use to improve their performance. Eric didn't get that. He, was, he never got anything like that. Um, 
So he was managed in a different way, but but he responded to whatever way that he, that he felt. Well, he responded in the way that he was managing. Now, Alex Ferguson learned he was for me the the, the best pavement psychologist. So he learned about psychology and from the street and from playing and from other people, and he adapted as he went through. So when it came to managing Ronaldo, he managed Ronaldo sometimes differently from Wayne Rooney because Ronaldo would come from Madeira through Lisbon uh, and there was a different culture and he, he developed different uh, ideas of how to manage these players and the squads got bigger as well so found kept finding a way of inventing themselves as well as reinventing teams so yeah it was all down to the understand you understood the person and how to get the best out of them um, that, and that, that changed because you, you, you listen to some of the Aberdeen players who just celebrated 40 years of winning the Cup Winners Cup they would tell you that it was like, every day he was like that you know but kinda, I used to say to people about what was he like you know what's, what's happened I used to say that later on not long after he'd just before he'd retired really so I'd known him for 20 odd years then and I used to tell people that he, if you asked me what it was like I said he's calmed down He's calmed down to mad. <laughs> um, but he, uh, he, he developed and he, he, he was great. Pavement psychology, brilliant. You, you were the first player to score 20 or more goals for Man United since George Best. What was it about Man United that made you settle so quickly? Um, I think the fact that the manager wanted me uh, and he would play you. So you knew you were going to play all the time and you you wanted to play well and reward his faith in you because you know, so they'd paid quite a lot of money really. they not went to tribunal but paid 850000 which was 10 times of what I'd gone to Celtic for only four years previously so you wanted to do well for him to put, for the faith he put in the we didn't win anything though. That's I didn't. I didn't really hold much um, store in the fact that nobody scored because in the same period Manchester United didn't win the league in that same period, and I thought that was more of a story. I didn't score twenty league goals after that, but we won the league. So it was nice to put something away of who do whatever. But we never we, we finished second, but we were miles behind Liverpool. So. Okay. Sure. Eric Cantona, right? Is that how you it? Cantona. Cantona, okay. Famously got sent off for kicking a fan. What did Sir Alex Ferguson say to the team and Eric after that incident? Well, he didn't kick, he didn't get sent off for doing that. He got sent off for trampling all over somebody. Oh, damn. So he got, he got sent off for. So he not stuff. only kicked a fan, he trampled someone too. He did trampled on somebody on the pitch, yeah. So not an accident like yours, not. Uh, <laughs> I mean, this is worse than mine, I think. Uh, I doubt the kicking a fan was an accident, though. Well, yeah, no, that wasn't an accident. But the story was that the fan had said something about his, his mother, you know, so... He only, he only kicked him in the chest, he didn't. Yeah. <laughs> that could have done serious damage! Oh, yeah, could have done, yeah. Uh, it, it was... 
again, it was a situation that, that if it had happened to other players, you just have to accept that you would have probably got sacked for it. But because it was Eric and he was the, made the difference, he was the he was the game changer. You know, he, he, because of things you were winning games and you were winning uh, titles. Um, I think he just just said that tried to be supportive of him and not judgmental, which was difficult, as I say, because. I'm quite confident if I'd have done it, I would have, that would have been the end of my Manchester United career. Can you talk to us about the rival rivalry with Liverpool? How did it feel to play in these games and did you enjoy going to Anfield? Anfield. Oh, I love going to all the way games. It's great going to places where they don't like you. You know, you're not quite sure when you're playing at home with some of your home fans might not like you, but when you played away, Anfield's great atmosphere, wonderful atmosphere, mm-hmm. uh, and got a few poor results there, but also got a few good results there as well. So good experiences, and you kind of form an opinion about the rivalry between Manchester and Liverpool, only based on football, but I mean. Lucky enough to spend some time in the, in Liverpool, socialising recently, and they're all nice people, you know. It's just when it comes to the football, that there's this uh, rivalry, but the atmosphere is brilliant, great to play, and even even as an opposition player, that's the kind of things you wanted to be involved in football for, playing in front of fervent crowds and great stadiums against great players and great teams, and hopefully you're you're going there to, to win and the, the first Premier League going to win going to places like Anfield and winning gave you a platform for going on to win and we beat Liverpool 2-1 at Anfield I scored a winning goal which would have been chopped off by VAR because it was a foul but no one noticed no, so no, no unfortunately no nobody noticed <laughs> for me and the player in front of me <laughs> it was a fellow Scott as well so and to score a goal, that was a winning goal at the cop. It was great. Yeah. We play this game with all of the footballers we have spoken to, such as High Red Knapp, Connor Cody, Sammy Lee and more. We will say the name of the player that you have played with and we want you to tell us a story or a memory about them. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. <coughs> Ali McCoyst. Ali um, for some reason, particularly when we were on the pitch, I don't know what it was. Um, I think we maybe looked to be a bit similar, even though we really don't look similar. And actually, his mum got us mixed up once. Right. Was shouting, um, "Well done!" and all that kind of thing. And I think my dad was at the game and said, "That's that's your son over there." You know, that's my son. <laughs> oh. Yeah. I've said that actually another thing as well. Just remind me there. We used to stay at a lovely hotel in Scotland called Glen Eagles Hotel. It was part of the preparation for Scotland games. And uh, there was a, a Scotland international rugby player there yeah. uh, called John Rutherford. And he came over and started talking to me about the game the day before. But quite, quite clearly, he was, I realised he was talking about the Rangers game. Yeah. I'm completely. No, I've never played for Rangers. So, and he's talking away to me, and I think Alistair just to come to the side, just nodded to me and went, Oh, I'm really sorry. 
after the seventh, and I was just enjoying them. Top, keep them going. I thought this is great. This is no idea that I'm not. I don't know why. It's, I don't really can like him, but. Uh, Gary Pollister, the most idle person I've ever met in my life. Okay. He, he wouldn't go. He would. He, he wouldn't answer the door. He wouldn't answer the phone. Wouldn't make his dinner. The only thing he did for himself was go to the toilet. That was all everything else he we got done for him. Most idle man I've ever met. Hmm. Well, there is one thing he could do to make him get get off his butt and do stuff. When he's in bed, just keep him off a bit. Oh, he's, <laughs> he's a big lad, though, you know. So he's like, he's got a get long, help. He's got a long reach, you know, and I might punch you, you know. Was just, I don't think get I, help and wear armor. <laughs> yeah, he might have needed to do that. Yeah. Also, as well as he, he wouldn't share his chocolate, you know. He used to bring chocolate to away trips, and he wouldn't. He wouldn't. He'd lick the chocolate so you couldn't take them. Gross. Uh, Not because he was eating them. Lee Sharp. Lee Sharp always got caught. So when he was out, when he shouldn't have been, or when he was doing Sharpie, always got always got caught. Um, great player. Um, very fast. I liked Fleming because he knew what he was. He, he would just knock the ball past someone and cross it in, and I just would be there to try and head it into the goals. Um, unfortunately, he got a, an injury to his knee, which I think made it more difficult for him to to uh, to excel. But and he's a very good golfer now. He plays like like he's very good at golf. Mark Hughes. Uh, Mark Hughes, his nickname Sparky. Somebody asked me the other day, how did he get his nickname? And I don't know. I'm going to have to ask him when the next time I see him. The, the thing about Mark, we used to call Mark a Tasmanian devil. It's a cartoon character. Yeah. Because he was the nicest, quietest man you'd meet. But on the training pitch, and on the pitch, he was wild and angry and fierce and, you know, competitive. So you'd be like, couldn't quite work out how, you know, how those two people were the same person, you know. Um, do it that Sparky would rather shoot than pass. Thank you for answering those. A group of players called the Class of 92 came through the youth system and into the first team. This included... Players such as David Beckham, Ryan Giggs, and more. Can you tell us about this group of players? Were like at a young age, and could you see what amazing potential they had? Well, if, when we uh, when the when football started to get played on more different days, like on Sundays um, and Monday nights, we would train in the Saturday morning when we finished the. The youth team, if they playing at home, would go and watch, um, watch them, and you could see. Certainly, I could see players that I liked. I mean, I always liked Paul Scholes because you could see Ryan was already involved. I mean, I, I remember like Ryan coming in training and they, somebody gave him a ball and he beat somebody and he'd, 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 I thought, oh, my God, he's running with the ball. I, I think I'm running as fast as I possibly can. I'm like, like he's what is he? He's quite incredible. But in that, the youth team, 
yeah, I thought Paul Scores a list like the way he played, and he was small, you know, the strip was hanging off him, and he had asthma and different things like that, you know. Yeah. But in that group of players, apart, apart from Gary and David, Nicky, Nicky, you can see as well, uh, Ben Thornley, who ended up getting a, a bad injury that finished him, really. He was potentially, there was a lad, um, the Docker Taylor, an Irish lad, he was a good player. Chris Casper, set half, that went on to have a decent career. And you had um, the, the, this lad who just run around all over the place. He played set forward, but he just ran around all over the place. Like he, didn't, he just didn't, just kept running, didn't really know how to play, but ran around all over the place. And he ended up getting a career in the game. He, um, he was called Robbie Savage. Well, he is called Robbie, he was. He is Robbie Savage. Uh, so there was a lot of good players. You could see different things. And then when I was not quite, no, I was not quite a regular then, uh, I used to play in train the reserve sometimes so I could see them. And so I knew. So like, when you're talking about Gary Parsley, Gary Parsley got a row from manager once because he didn't know that Gary Nell had a long throw. Gary had never seen him before, you know, so that, I knew he had a long throw because that was one of his attributes. I never thought Beckham was, David was a player. I couldn't see a player, David Beckham. He just wanted to hit the ball really far all the time and most of the time it went out. So I couldn't see that. Scholes, yeah, it was great. And funny as well. I mean, Paul Scholes speaks more in the first 30 seconds when he's doing TV punditry now than he did in the the whole time that I've known him as a person. Never ever said, you know. So but you could see that there was qualities in some of them. And they all did very well for themselves too. And they're a tight group still, which is great, you know. So Can we play another quick fire game of you please? Yeah. We will give you two options and you have to choose oh. your favourite or your winner. Oh, right. I thought it was a multiple choice. Basically, this is a would you rather. Right, okay. Right, go. Okay. City break or beach holiday? City break. No, so, it depends what city you're sending me to. You know. <laughs> we have no idea. <laughs> you know, you so just I, pick the city. I don't want to go to a war tomb. No, no. We will not send you to anywhere near there. No, where there's any... no way. If there's if, even a small margin of you dying, <laughs> not happening. Well, there's always that chance anyway you go in there, but yeah, city okay. break, Okay, if, if there's a chance of you dying over, say, 10%, we're not sending you anywhere near what do that. I get this, what do I get in the city? I don't, I can't lie on the beach, so it's like, I can't stay still. I'm like, mm. and, I, they, I I, don't, I like, and personally, there are crabs on the beach. I like the, uh, anywhere near those pinching things. I like the sun, but it doesn't like me, I just get burnt. Bit, so. Yeah, join the club. My yeah. mom, I'm a ginger, and my mom told me that gingers don't book tan; they burn. No. I burn. I don't tan. <laughs> I yeah. burn. Yeah. So yeah, it'll set a break all day. Yeah. Celtic Park or Old Trafford? Celtic Park. Okay. Gary or Phil? Gary. Deep fried haggis or deep fried Mars bar? Oh. <laughs> I've never got. I've only had I've only had Mars bar once, uh, and it was actually. It was all right, yeah, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be, but haggis, deep fried haggis, well, rather not, rather it wasn't deep fried, but yeah, occasionally I think, yeah, haggis, out of the, the chip shop, yeah. Okay. 
Scoring or assisting? <sighs> Scoring. Okay. Oasis or Blur? <sighs> Pulp. No <laughs> <laughs> choice, but okay. Ronaldo or Messi? Messi. Win the World Cup with Scotland or treble with Man United? World Cup. Okay. As I said, football, I take it. You're not picking any other sport. <laughs> Tell the <laughs> Monopoly, rugby, and all that. Skiing. No. <laughs> Fight against one chicken the size of an elephant or ten elephants the size of chickens. <laughs> That's a brilliant question. That. Yeah. We're doing this for laughs. He's got, he's got to be the, the small elephants. <laughs> I don't. I don't fancy my chances against either of them. I think I'd have to go for the. If, I'd put, if you put me in the the ring with some, there's no way I'm going in the ring with a, a chicken the size of an elephant. Yeah, they I'm not hurt. sure I get in the ring with a chicken the size of a chicken. My my sister says says that my as you know chickens are descended from dinosaurs, and my sister says and they know it. Yeah. They know they're descended from dinosaurs. They know. Yeah, particularly the roosters have got sharp yeah, claws. Yeah, they're, they're the roosters are nasty. Yeah. When we when from the TikTok, they are. But I think I'll go for the small elephants. Yeah, mm-hmm. at least at least then then you know. See the thing, I know, but think about the small elephants. I think about if they should be able to run away from them until they got tired, really. You know, so just keep mm-hmm. running. A chick, yeah, an elephant is slower than a chicken. Yeah. Wait, small elephants. But I think hang slower. on, that that that. Yeah, but what if they also gain the speed of a chicken because of the size? Oh, you're just you're toasting. You're torturing me. I was like, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm going to have some bad dreams about small elephants. No. <laughs> I'm sorry. Manchester United had not won a league title for 26 years, and then in the 90s, the team became very successful. What had changed at the club to make it so successful? It was just that increments of improvement. Say that the. the, the the number of good players available to play. There was good players when I was all the time that I was there, but they weren't also able to play. Good players were able to play, and then developing into a good, strong team that that had um, trust, loyalty, and respect for each other. And when you get to the thing, so we, we, we had a real tough time. The last old first division when Leeds won it, um, we were really close, you know, and. Lots of people said that we would never rise from that. Would that be too much of a, a blow to us psychologically or physically maybe even? But we were determined from the moment that that season finished. You know, I'd hated pre-season and I, I was so keen to get back because we knew we were really, really close. And the following season we managed to, to win it. And then when you win it, it takes away a lot of the the pressure of, of all those years before so when the, the those young players come into the, uh, the the squad and then eventually into the team they nothing was ever mentioned about that because it all, all that had gone you know so it was, easy, it was easier it was a better platform for them uh, and they got a lot of support and advice and encouragement from and also criticism from, from us because we wanted to be continue to be successful they knew what the standard was and they, they they achieved that and arguably went beyond that, you know. <clears throat> Sir Alex Ferguson yeah. guided the team into a very successful... Uh, <coughs> How many typos? T. 
team. Yeah, that's team. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about how he managed? Did he oversee everything at the club? In the beginning, he did. He, um, but the, the club was a lot smaller than it was when they retired. Um, he knew, well, he knew all the players. He knew everything about all the players. He knew what he wanted from his staff. They knew what he wanted, what was expected of them. He knew everybody's name at Old Trafford, so and he'd always ask them and by name, which was a and I think he's still got this ability or a learned trait that if he's introduced to people he knows remembers the name right away. And I think that made people feel very good about it, very good, you know, that oh Alex Ferguson knows who I am. Um so he he was prepared and that he'd been successful before. He knew what he wanted. He was driven, very driven. And he expected, he laid high, down high standards on and off the pitch. Uh, discipline. Um, the discipline for me that was particular and it still applies to me now um, is timekeeping. So I was here an hour ago, an hour before 11, I was here at 10 o'clock. Because um, I want to be early all the time, so that when people talk about Fergie time and he's pointing to his watch at the end of the game, it's not that. It's about when he told you there was a meeting or to be somewhere, you had to be there ten minutes before, and that was again part of maybe his judgment of what you were like, because you kind of turn up five minutes after the game's kicked off, maybe a bit of a problem there, you know, wandering down the tunnel putting your strip on the game you could be one nil down so um, discipline in 1993 you won your first Premier League title what are your memories of that season I remember that we were uh, bottom after two or three games I think three games we were bottom and uh, one of the it's Stratford then which is traditionally the, where the most fervent and vocal supporters were had been knocked down because we're building a, a new stand there. Um, and and the Eric came, and that, that was probably a, something that kind of changed for all of us. So, very surprised that a team like Leeds, who had won the league the year before, were li- willing to let him go. And willing to let him go for such a small amount of money, really. And we all expected, in a way, um, to live up to his reputation, which was as was a spoiled boy. You know, but he came into dressing room and um, his behaviour on and off the pitch, apart from occasionally kicking fans, was great. Mm. And he was a great player, you know, great to play with. So. Except when he's assaulting fans. Yeah, it only happened once. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and he got to sent to prison for it. Good. You don't kick someone out of nowhere and get away with it. He didn't get away with it, no. We have a few questions from some of our listeners, if you can answer them for us. The first question comes from Steve Morgan, who asks, what was the best sketch by an apprentice at Man United's ground at the Christmas <laughs> show? Oh, God, that's brilliant. I didn't know about that. Um, oh, they were great. Some of the things were fantastic. Were... So could we, I don't, what, what, what do you mean by that question? Because as you... They did. They were expected. Well, expected part of the um, part of the, I suppose the other way of finding out 
the potential of young players was putting them in uh, situations they weren't comfortable with. So they all knew that it started a long time ago that there would be some kind of thing going at, at Christmas lunch. So they were, they were expected to do something. And then is it after a few little things where maybe somebody would do a joke or sing or that kind of thing, it got quite... And they started getting really looking forward, you know, because it would be the first years and second years. So the first years would be a bit nervous and all that because they'd never done it before. And then and they, 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 they were desperate to get dressed up and... Basically, it was a way of really ridicule what they saw in the players and the staff as well, right? And they were allowed to get away, you get away with it, you know, so you could play Alex Ferguson and put him in situations that were a bit different, and you know you were going to get away with it, you know, because it was humour and parody and all that kind of thing. Maybe one of the funniest ones was when they were at Carrington and uh, there was. Some of the when the lads, so somebody they had a script and all they wrote, they did all this script writing and all that stuff. So then it's like almost like a unique, unique script, you know. And so they'd have it near all the first team players that come down, and they'd have a little bit, they'd play them in different little bits, whatever they saw, they would be, you know, like Ronaldo was like all his, like he left, left his, his body and his strength, he'd, he'd be. He'd be Somebody would be dressed up as him and they'd come in and whatever and they'd say some different things and they were quite good at different accents and everybody would be laughing, oh, look at that shoe, you know, like, oh, what are you doing, look at that, that's you, and they'd go, I don't, I don't do that, do I? It was quite good. And one of them was that there was, they mentioned Luke Rude van Nistelrooy, he was a Dutch forward, and then outside the balcony, which was a big, big window outside the balcony, one of the lads was running along with a horse's head on, because right, he had a very long face, and he was like, I don't understand this. And whereas Real Ferdinand and Paul Scholes and kind of they're crying, laughing at this lad who's and this one, this was angry, you know, because I don't, I'm not, I'm not a horse. So, yeah, well, that was one particular one I do remember. The bit of a great, you know, really got into it, yeah. And you, and you were going to get some, I mean, I think sometimes I was. Portrayed as a big issue seller, and I was coaching then at the time, so they come in with somebody with a big issue seller, you know. And they had strips of the numbers on, and all that, just in case there was ever a, a, a doubt of who it was, you know, they would turn around at the schools or never, you know. Our next Great question. question yeah. Our next question comes from Brian Baldwin, who asks Having played for Celtic and Man United, which derby was the most intense? The Glasgow derby or United against Liverpool? Yeah, the the Glasgow derby has always been the most intense. Because yeah, I think because it's it's part of the same city, you know, Liverpool, Manchester are separated by several miles. But uh, Celtic Rangers, Rangers, Celtic is, is I think it's involved for the whole week during the game and certainly for a couple of days after depending on what the result is uh, and, it, and it's a shame now that there's no they played last weekend at uh, Rangers and there was no Celtics but there's no away fans I think that's taken some of the some of the attraction out of it for me Thank you for answering those questions mm-hmm. You won four league titles with Man United is there a certain one that stands out for you out most for you and why? I think the, the, the not really. The, you won in the, the, the won in the first one because 
um, because you had the disappointment, we got we got really close the year before, and we were all disappointed, not disillusioned, just disappointed. So winning that one, and uh, it it then took away that hoodoo that um, had been there for twenty six years. Um, so yeah, we're doing when you do something for the first time, I suppose. Yeah, that's so we're in the first one, and I, and I mean, part of this, the the daydreaming when I was a young boy was was, was winning things, but uh, what happened in certainly in all of my career, not just my playing career, but talking about playing career, that, that one of the things I did, and I would have said, nah, no chance, you know. Even the even the World Cup scenario would been if we'd have said, Well, would you take this as a body of of a football career? I said, hey, Oh yeah, I'm more more than happy to have all of that, yeah. And all the other experiences as well. I mean, even losing in cup finals is a, yeah. is better than getting beat in the semi. Um, what did the fans think of you whilst at Man United and how would you like to be remembered by the fans? Uh I think they were, yeah, they were appreciative of what kind of player you were. I mean, Matt, they used to sing that I was here, he was, I was here, there and everywhere, you know. I'm not sure that was exactly what you're supposed to be doing, but, you know, so they liked the fact that you had a sort of positive song about it, a chant or whatever. Um, I think that there would be someone who just did the very best they could. Might be rubbish, but just did the best they could. And be a team player. You left Man United in 1998. Why did you leave the club? Because I was old. <coughs> You're not that old. <laughs> I was then in football terms, yeah. So now my, my, time, had, my time had come. I, I, I was no longer able to, to be... I was no longer a Premier League player at that time, you know. So I went, went back, to, back, back to Scotland for a little while, so... You know, you like you, you like anything. you don't want an end to come to an end. But in football, my I, I knew that the, what the kind of lifetime span of a football player was. I also had thirty five in my head, and I got to to thirty five. So I, I'm saying I only missed twelve weeks because I didn't tackle anybody. Um, but um, you know, you th- you three choices stay forever. Of course you could, but you can't. You got to let somebody else have another goal. You know. The following season, Man United won the famous treble. Do you feel any regret leaving Man United and not staying on for one more season? Well, I didn't have a choice. So it's, I mean, you'd always want to be involved in, in situations like that. But as I say, my, that was my time. That was OK. The following season, it was somebody else's time. You know, they were an incredible achievement. You feel proud that you were uh, part of the... The building the foundations for such a great season. So no, that wasn't that wasn't the thing we were talking about, it, you know. Delighted for the ones who the ones I knew who who were involved. Brian, your mind's really inspired this up. That says kid. Yeah, yeah. Brian Kid asked you to be his assistant manager in Blackburn in nineteen ninety eight. How did how did you find that role? And sadly, and sadly, 
Blackburn got relegated from the Premier yeah. League that year. Well, I wasn't the assistant, I was his first team coach, but if you look at um, a number of Premier Leagues in regards to relegation, in the time that we were there, we got a point a game, and if you got a point a game over the period of the season, you, you'd stay up. Uh, so I think the, the period of time beforehand was the, the was before we got there was the, the, the thing that ultimately sent them down. Uh, we nearly we nearly got out of it, you know, we could have nearly got, but we didn't manage that. So, but it was a great experience being involved in the other side of football, you know watching and learning about coaching and managing. You returned to Man United in 2001 to be the reserve team manager and won some silverware in the first season. Can you tell us about that role and is it something you enjoyed? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, because I just finished the, my um, A, A licence as a football coach and I got the, job, the opportunity to go there uh, a one-year contract. That's not. It's a great chance to practice on my own. Something that I'd been learning for the two years previously, and then it was it was great going back because that's when it just gave me a bit of paper with a number of people on it, and just let me go home with it. Occasionally, they'd come over and ask me what was happening, what I was doing. But I loved it. Give you a chance to see it practice, you know. I mean, what I learned then was that because you had Alex Ferguson, uh, you had Jim Ryan. McFeeling was the same, around about the same age as me, but he'd been coaching longer than me. Um, you had um, Paul McGuinness, Tony Whelan, Mark Dempsey, and they'd all been coaching a lot longer than me. And I recognised that actually I knew nothing about coaching, you know. I'd done the, the courses, but I didn't really know anything. So I just, it's great to be able to just sit and watch them and listen to them and seek their advice uh, at times about different situations, mainly to do with man management of the of the young players. But it was a, certainly a challenge. Sometimes you would have... I remember having a, a coaching session where I had two players. So I had two. And then the manager asked for one. So I had one. And he wasn't happy because he wasn't... Because the one that I'd had went over to the train with the first team. And the one that I was left with wasn't happy because he hadn't been asked to go over. And I was starting to explain that it's only because they were looking for a defender and he was a forward. So, and then the next, the ne very next day, I had 31. So mm. that was kind of, as a reserve team coach I had, so you had to be very adaptable to, to changes in numbers. And they happened consistently where they would come over and take somebody away from you to go and do something with the first team. Or they'd send somebody over and you just had to adapt. Uh, but I loved being involved in the coaching and and it lasted I ended up with different roles in Manchester for another 14 years so I had a chance to be involved in that and get shouted at by Alex Ferguson for another 14 years 25 years he's shouting at me he's still shouting at me when I go to see him <laughs> you then became the director of the Youth Academy at United what did this role entail and did you enjoy it? Yeah, I, well, I did enjoy it. I didn't, it was not a role that I, that I, lo I loved coaching more. I loved doing the youth team, probably the ideal thing. Uh, but a number of people suggested that I might make a reasonable academy manager. So my 
applied for the job and I, I got the job and it was then I had to manage a lot more adults, not just manage the, the young individuals. And but I had had great staff. I mean, the, the, all the people there had been nearly all the people had been recruited previously by by um, Les Kershaw, who was a current manager who'd been recruited by Alex Ferguson. So it, it made it it made the job a lot um, more comfortable. And I, and I just let people kind of... I let people go on and do what they were doing. The only time, the, the only... My kind of role and responsibilities was to occasionally give them a row when it wasn't quite right. And I didn't have to do that that often. So it was great. It's like being a headmaster. You can just let the teachers do what you like, you know. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Until they do it wrong. <laughs> Do you want to get back into football in the future? I didn't. I mean, I've never really thought that I've ever left it. I think football's left me in a way, you know. So I've just got to become uh, a bit of a dinosaur, really. I'm like a small, small chicken dinosaur. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so, and I know I, li- I like the see the see. I'm given the the choice. I mean, I was. I liked it so much that I was there every day. I never took, I didn't have a city break, anything like that. I just really enjoyed what I was doing. When you're um, you're removed from that, you discover that actually having the opportunity and the, the freedom to do what you like is also quite good. So to be able to come here today, for example, was brilliant. Mm-hmm. You know, not thinking, oh, I've got to get back for for training or or I can't do it. So. Yeah, to, to me, it's, I've always liked trying to be, I think I'm quite positive really as a person, you know. So. You you also have your own podcast called Life with Brian. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please? What And what do you talk about on your podcast? We talk about whoever the guest is, hmm. so it's about them. And I like doing, very much like you two have done, finding out questions that go Oh, I've never heard that before, you know, that's a good question. It makes them think about whatever particular subject we're going to do. Uh, I'm, an, I'm astonished, really, that the number of people have, have agreed to be on so far. All of them great guests in their own way. Um, and it's, uh, I think that the thing is that I can imagine if there's one person that listens to it and it gives them some pleasure, the main because this happened, started out during lockdown, which was tough for everybody. So, without being condescending, I wanted to have something that was a bit humorous, and I think we've managed we managed to achieve that, you know. And, but it's all down to the guests; it's up to them. And you find, certainly, I find that if you find a few questions for them, then then they're away talking about whatever they want to talk about. We don't have a. There's the other two lads that I do with it. You've got a little bit of a script. I don't have any script. I just have a... You mean Sometimes, yeah. I do some research, you know. I don't let them go in and have no idea about the bad but, but they've got a, a fallback. So it's a good little team, three of us. Before we finish, we would like to play a game with you that we play with all of our guests. The game is called Wrong Dancers Only. 
We will ask you a range of questions and you have to give us the wrong answer. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Favourite ground in the Premier League? Favourite ground? Oakwell Park. Okay. Best player you ever played with? Pele. Okay. Highlight of your career? Uh, opening batsman for England in the Ashes. <laughs> Best friend in football? Best friend in football. Yeah. That would be, um, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, Seviano Ballesteros at the time. <laughs> at the time. Charlie has passed away then. The best thing about Brian McClare is? The, 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 the best thing about Brian McClare. Yeah. We're basically having yourself insult yourself now. It's not, it isn't. The best thing about Brian McClare is that he has uh, very smelly feet. <laughs> Every week on the podcast, we like our guests to ask questions to each other. So we get a guest to ask a question, but they have no idea who the question is going to be for. This week's question comes from our previous guest, who was former Leeds Rhino captain Stevie Ward, and he asked, "If you could put one word on a billboard to advertise yourself, what would it be and why?" One word. Yes, yeah. one word. Intellectual. Can you do the same, please? Can you think of a question for our next guest? But we're not going to tell you who the guest is. The question can be anything you want. I've got to come up with a question, though. Yep, for our next guest. Um, Give me a minute to think about that. What would your best friend say is your most attractive feature? Okay. (laughs) Interesting one. I would just like to say a big thank you again to everyone who listens to our podcast. We really appreciate it. Please continue to leave reviews and pass our podcast on to your friends and family. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Brian. Um, Thank you also so much for taking the time to visit our school today. We really enjoyed speaking with you and it means so much to us as a school to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure and uh, I've been uh, inspired by your uh, your questions <laughs> I, might, I might steal some now. the TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport this unique podcast is hosted by children with autism and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world the TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career their highs and lows what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine.